we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, ah, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck nicks? What the fucksters? What the fuck adelics? What the fuckleberry thins? Can I just, can I do something really quick? Hold on. Can I just do something really quick? Hang out a second. How about a little of this? You hear that organ? How can you... That organ is unmistakable. Everybody knows the beginning of this song because of that fucking organ. Isn't that insane? Yeah. You know who that is? Wow, that was abrupt. I should fade out. Maybe I should learn how to do that. Do a professional, like a radio guy. That was Ben Montinch of the Heartbreakers. That was Tom Petty, obviously, the beginning of Refugee. But the guy who played the keys on that organ is going to be here. That's who's on the show today, Ben Montinch. I'm talking to a Heartbreaker. He And I just got his new record. They sent it to me, finally, on vinyl. I had the CD, wouldn't listen to it. Uh, Blue Note Records, Ben Montinch. You should be so lucky. It's his uh, solo record on 180-gram vinyl. Um, from the original analog tape produced by Glenn Johns. Good record. It's, it's nice to hear a dude that's got chops for years. Come on, Tom Petty and the fucking Heartbreakers. Where would any of us be without Tom Petty? Lost, unable to process certain things like our adolescence and and even things later, existential relief for so much Tom Petty offered. So it's an honor today to talk to Ben Montinch here in the garage. Tonight is the premiere of season two of Marin on IFC. Starts at 10 p.m. in most places, 9 p.m. somewhere, some places in the middle. But that's happening. It's tonight. Tonight is the night. I think I've had a lot of uh, stress about it, a lot of anxiety, a lot of, I don't know if I've had dread, but you know, it's finally here. So you can watch it. Uh, tonight's show features Chris Hardwick, Michael Ian Black, Sarah Silverman, um, Nora Zahetner as uh, Jen. I mean, it's uh, it's the open. Please watch or DVR it. Marin on IFC. Okay? <laughs> okay. Now let's go to my website and see where I'm playing. I'll be at the Wild West Comedy Festival on Thursday, May 15th, interviewing Vince Vaughn in an intimate theater one-on-one. And then on Friday night, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I'll be at Zany's in Nashville doing a 7 o'clock show. Okay? Yes, Friday, May 16th. Saturday, May 31st, I'll be in Albuquerque, New Mexico, my hometown. Uh, Saturday, May 31st at the National Hispanic Cultural Center. Uh, you can go to WTFPod.com for tickets to, you know, or info on this stuff. Saturday, June 14th, I will be in Chicago, Illinois at the 26th annual, first annual comedy festival. Um, and Thursday, June 26th through Saturday, June 28th, I will be at the Comedy Attic in Bloomington, going from the big, from the big room to the small room, doing the work. I'm sorry I forgot to tell you I was going to be on This American Life, but I didn't know. Last weekend's This American Life, Ira and I talked about drugs. So you go find that wherever you find that This American Life show and listen to that. I will be on Conan O'Brien tonight for my, I don't know how many times I've been on. I don't, it's in the 50s now. Excited to hang out with Andy and Conan. They they appear in uh, in this season of Marin as well. 
the episode I directed, the episode called The Joke. I don't know when that's going to be on in the season. I'll keep you up to date with this stuff. I was in New York. I was there for like literally like 14 hours. I did uh, Ron Bennington's uh, Unmasked show. I don't know when he's putting that up, but that was fun. Did some other press stuff. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't fly first class people. I don't fly first, first class. Occasionally, if somebody puts me in business, uh, I will fly business, but because I had to take the red eye and then no, I was not going to get a lot of sleep because I had to, you know, get to New York and do press so I could be home in time to go do midnight. It's just a big week because the premiere of Marin is tonight. So I, I sort of, uh, I don't know if I divided it up, but I said, look, you got to put me in first, first class so I can, you know, lay down thoroughly and, and sweep a couple hours, a couple hours or I'm going to be fucked on this press day. So they put me on one of these new American planes where you, the first class, the first, first class, it's like your own little pod. It's like a, it's a very small studio apartment. The only thing you don't have is, you know, like a, a gas stove and, uh, you know, some cabinets for your, for food and stuff. You got everything you need right there. It's just you, and the, and and you have a bed. It becomes a bed, and you just and you got a TV right there, and you got like shelving. You could bring you know a few books if you'd like, and put them out if you want. Um, it was really something. I'd walked by them before and judged the people in there as being people who clearly have money to throw away or corporate accounts, but I did demand it so I could sleep and be uh, and be on the money for my press day. So here, like, I don't know, is is first class secret? Is first class like Vegas? Am I betraying trust if I talk about who was in first class with me? Here's how little I know about, about pop culture is that behind me is Randy Jackson from uh, American Idol. Okay, fine. I don't know what he's doing now. I didn't know him. I knew he was somebody, but I didn't know who he was because I don't watch that. So then I'm sitting there, you know, getting ready to make my bed in first class. And Joaquin Phoenix walks in with someone I believe might have been his mom. And they're going to New York, too. This is a red eye. And I'm excited, you know, because this is why I don't take it for granted that I'm in first class. This is why I don't fly first class all the time, because clearly in my heart, I don't deserve it because I'm such a fucking fanboy sometimes. Like, there's Joaquin, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having a struggle. I'm like, there's part of me that's like, well, I wonder if he knows who I am. Wouldn't that be exciting? Then there's part of me it's like, just be cool, dude. This is first class. You know, this is where this is where you are now. This is this is not a big deal for them. This is what they do. Randy Jackson and Joaquin Phoenix, they they sleep on airplanes comfortably wherever they go just because it's new and exciting for you. Like, I don't know. I was I don't know if I was more excited about being able to sleep in, in the bed in my own cubicle, in my own studio apartment in the first class cabin or that Joaquin was there. Well, I don't know, but then you're sort of like, should I introduce myself? Maybe I could talk to him on the show. But, but first class, I, I'm trying to figure out what are the rules? Do we just accept you know, okay, this is this is a this is a small party. We're all part of a small class of people that travel in first class. I'm mean, not me. I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a carpetbagger. I'm an intruder. I'm I'm a phony. But I'm there, and I'm just being cool, just playing it cool. And you know, Joaquin Phoenix, uh, he sits down in his seat, and the woman he's with sits over there. And I'm like, all right, he's up. He's right up there. Probably one of the greatest actors. I think my generation, really. Isn't he my generation? Maybe a little younger. I kind of, you know, he's got very definitive physicalities, you know, in his roles. Like You can even hear him breathing in the way he talks. He's kind of mush-mouthed a little bit. And I just wanted to hear him mumble and breathe. And then somewhere during the flight, you know, I would made my bed and I, you know, I had to get up and go to the bathroom. I go to the bathroom. I'm walking back. And th- this is the weird thing about air travel. And certainly when you're, uh, you know, in the, uh, 
in the new first class, I guess. It's my first time. Is that uh, if I wanted to, which I did for a second because I was right behind him, like uh, he was sleeping, so Joaquin Phoenix was sleeping. So why not watch him sleep for a minute? I mean, you know, he's one of the greatest actors of uh, of my generation. Why not just watch him sleep for a second? Like, don't pause too long. I, I, I it was a little weird. It was a little weird, and I, I, I don't know if anyone's going to hear this who knows him, and you know, I don't want to be the weird guy, but I, I got a cop to it. I did stand there in first class and looked down into Joaquin Phoenix's pod. And he was, you know, he's not completely reclined, but he was sleeping while, uh, while the movie Lone Survivor was on. And I watched him sleep for a minute. Now, I don't know what would have happened if he had sort of woken up and looked at me just standing there watching him. I guess I would say like, great job, man. Great job. Great sleeping. You're really, you're one of the best. Like I completely believed it and it looked very natural very natural sleeping. I'm just saying, I'm 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 new to first class, and I don't think it's going to stick because I you know I would never pay for it by myself because I'm not cheap. I just don't. What's the big deal? It is a big deal. It's fucking amazing. I slept for two hours like a baby, and then I got to New York, and I was wasted, tired, and just plowed through the day. Wow. You hear that organ? That's Ben Montinch. Keyboardist for the Heartbreakers from the beginning. And you know what? He's here with me today. So let's talk to Ben Montinch now. This is it. Hot Six, damn, I've been waiting for this. Have you been waiting for it? I have. I, I know some of your friends have been on here. Fiona was in here. Yeah, you've had Fiona on here, and Booker, who I met once, was uh, met a few times, uh-huh. was on here. I got to play back-to-back with him at Largo one time. Oh, really? Did yeah. you, you weren't able to, to sort of do a, a, an organ duel? What we did was we had the Largo piano where it always is, yeah. and my Hammond, and we were set up so that he would play piano and I'd play organ, or we'd switch off, and we were literally back-to-back, backs touching. Uh-huh. And we both had like whatever the hats were we had on. There's a couple of great pictures of it. Oh yeah, yeah. He's a real thrill. He, I, I, you know, I always get nervous with the with the guys that you, you know represent about you know seventy years of oh, music, yeah. and you're like, where do you where do you start? But he's such a level dude, and you know, you know, real thoughtful and and grounded, and and you know, you know what he's got? He's got that personality. I think he said it on the on the podcast where he's like, he, he's he's a band guy. You he's know, a he's, band guy. Yeah, he's not a an upfront guy. It's the way to be. Yeah, in my opinion, he's well, a band guy. When you first heard him, like, uh, did he have an impact on your style? Because he invented, in some ways, I guess him and who Jimmy McGriff, who was the other massive Hammond guy, uh, Jimmy Smith. Too. Jimmy Smith. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Those were the guys. Those were the guys. But for me, it was more Booker uh-huh. than anybody. Booker and Matthew Fisher from Procol Harum. Uh huh. Because oh, everybody, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. where I grew up, everybody who played organ played jazz, kind of like Jimmy Smith. And I was a rock and roll guy, or they tried to play like Jimmy Smith. Yeah. Nobody could. Right. And I was a rock and roll guy, so I didn't relate to the point where when I heard Time is Tight or Green Onions or Whiter Shade of Pale on the radio, I didn't yeah. realize it was the same instrument that I had seen people play around town. Right. 
Booker played it so differently than all these cats around town. It's an it's like it's a it's an amazing sound. It's like enchanting, man. It's really special and it's really seductive when you start playing it. What is the name of that instrument exactly? It's a Hammond organ. Um, there are several models. Uh, there are A one hundreds and M somethings and B B threes and C three. I play a C three. Uh huh. And I think that some of that stuff might be an A one. You know, it's just getting into little yeah. stuff, but they're the, basically the same thing. Uh huh. So it's a Hammond organ. Uh huh. And is it what, what drives that? Is 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 it air making that sound? Is it one of those things? No, where it's crazed. It's uh. It was a clockwork company, I think, that made clocks uh-huh. and alarm clocks yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And there's some kind of arcane system, John Bryan would be able to explain it. <laughs> John, ceramic, John Bryan can explain everything. Ceramic wheels yeah. turning. Yeah. And some kind of electromagnetic magic field gets thrown off of the ceramic wheels and, and makes this beautiful singing tone. So when you first started playing, I mean, you, where'd you grow up? You grew up in Florida? Grew up in Gainesville, Florida. How old are you? A little older than me? How old are you? I'm 50. You're 50? I'm 50. Dude, I'm way older than you. I'm 60, man. So you're 10 years old. I'm 10 years older. All right, I'm just trying to figure out what, what music was falling into your head and, and what Florida looked like at that I'll time. I'll tell you what, Florida was pretty magical at yeah. that time. North Florida, I keep thinking of it as being like To Kill a Mockingbird. Sure. It's, I, it is the South. North Florida is the, the South. It's the South. Yeah. Um, and if you're wondering if Nor- if Florida's the South anymore, just take a look at the way that Florida's been on certain issues lately. Sure, yeah. Um, it's the South, but it was pretty glorious. Um, tall pine trees. The music that would come through, though, when I was a kid, I mean, Elvis made That's All Right Mama when I was three years old. Right. So the music that I remember from being really little is Bill Haley and the Comets. Was it your old man was into it, though? My old man wasn't. I don't think my parents were into it. I think they weren't against it. Right, but you didn't hear it in the house. You heard it in the I world. I heard it a little bit in the house. Yeah. The first records I remember hearing ever. 57 was, was Rock Around the Clock, I think, right? Or something that like that? That sounds about right. Yeah. The, the first records I remember hearing in the house are Frosty the Snowman, when it was probably a brand new tune. <laughs> yeah. And uh, See You Later, Alligator by Bill Haley and the Comets. Yeah. And See You Later, Alligator drove me crazy. Yeah. Uh, it must have been about four when that came out. Yeah. It had an impact. It had a big impact. That record <laughs> swings like mad. So what what kind of what kind of environment you grew up in? Was it musical? I mean, did your folks, were they musical people? Yeah, absolutely. My father played classical piano and- um, At home? Classical guitar at home. Yeah. And he had apparently, before I was born, been the rhythm guitar player in some little- combo that went and played uh jazz probably around the caribbean when it was still you know oh yeah before castro that was his uh, his early life that's what he had done after the army you know like when he had free time because he was a lawyer too oh he's a lawyer yeah and yeah my, my mom was like my mom had a degree in in spanish and wound up flying as a stewardess for uh because they weren't called flight attendants not for, then no. for pan am yeah and she scored because, you know, she's in her early 20s probably. And she got him. And she got him, <laughs> but he got her. And let me tell you, she was really, really something. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. She, she could paint. She, she was fluent in, two or th- in a couple of languages. She was, she was the deal. Open-minded people? You know, for that time and in that part of the country, relatively. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Relatively. I mean, it's... Uh, 
you know, they, they might get thrown a little bit by the long hair because my father said it just reminded him of the Depression when the Beatles showed up with long hair, you know. It's like... Oh, really? Yeah, he like said... You couldn't afford just, a haircut? Yeah, you couldn't afford a haircut or you'd just have your mom cut it at home and it'd come out ragged. Yeah. You know, so it just yeah. reminded him of, of, you know, like the Depression. Did he have memories of that? Was he uh, absolutely stuck yeah, in that? Oh, yeah? He, absolutely. I mean, he wasn't impoverished by it, but he was yeah. definitely affected by it's it. Hard not, it's hard to imagine just how devastating, you know, that, that was for... For everybody, I mean, even when we had the recession, it seems like now because of the media, you know, you know, th- pe- things are hard for people. But there's enough distraction. Yeah, there was enough distraction. But not then. No, there wasn't any distraction. No. They, Just radio, dude. That's all you had. <laughs> you had radio, and you had your imagination. Yeah, and things weren't spelled out for you. Things are spelled out for you now oh, yeah. so much. Yeah, to a to you a know? detriment. To a detriment. Yeah. So I don't want a video that's a literal interpretation of a song. Right. You know. Right. And I heard somebody, I heard the Handsome family talking on the radio about the theme song to True Detective. Right. And people saying, what does it mean? Yeah. And they were saying, well, why would I write a song that it's so easy to know what what it means if I could just say it? Then I'd just say it instead of writing a song. I remember when I saw you guys' first record, I was like, what is this? I remember getting the first record. Yeah. And what was that, like 76 or something? Yes, end of end of 76. And, you know, then I remember seeing an article on, on Petty, you know, and something like, you know, he was the new guy. And I got to be honest with you, I, you know, I still, I listen to that record regularly. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> I'm fucking, like, like and, if, and I, when I talk to people, I'm like, well, there's a few constants in the world of American music. And, and you know, he's one of them. And Man, you're part of that. that's great to hear. Oh, Petty is an undeniable mountain. Well, that's what I think is that he's just an undeniably great songwriter, you know. But you guys, and a really a, cool you, singer. But you guys, as a band, like did something. I don't because like you came out at a time, you know. I didn't see that documentary, so if they, if this is repeated, I'm sure you've talked about this stuff a million times. But it was it was thoroughly like a, American music. It wasn't punk rock. It wasn't no, British. It, wasn't. It, it was almost like like it was almost like the band. We were just trying to play rock and roll. We weren't even thinking about it. We just knew that Tom had great songs. We had come through a period where every band around us played, you know, in North Florida, everybody wanted to be the Almonds. And the Almonds were great, but we didn't want to be the Almonds. So we just wanted to play songs that were really good songs. And like, hey, here's these songs. And we had a shit hot lead guitar player. Yeah. So it was like, okay, that's that's what we want to focus on he's good yeah he's good (laughs) so that's what we wanted to that's what we wanted to do was play tom's songs really really well it's it's also fucking tasteful and you know i don't know like uh, even from the beginning but all right so let's go through that i mean so were you trying to to play like the allman brothers at some point no never was no i mean everybody dug the allman brothers yeah yeah greg allman's a wonder and we all know about Dwayne. the whole band the rhythm section yeah that wasn't that wasn't where we were at right right you know? right yeah so what what where did you start playing you started playing your, your piano at home or what i started playing at home when i was like seven i took lessons yeah and um i had a great teacher who had taught my dad mm-hmm. and so she was old enough that she would she didn't care about all this okay you're going to practice this really boring piece of scales and stuff she said you go to the movies and you see a movie that has a cool theme, How the West Was Won or whatever, right. we'll find it and we'll learn that. That's the way to go. And she'd also, after a while, say, you know, I'd say, well, do you want me to play you this piece? And she'd say, just play whatever you want to play. Just play for me. Mm-hmm. Now, she probably just wanted to sleep. 
but she was it was really great because she made me love music it wasn't about drudgery right i loved music already but she made me love piano as a way to play music uh-huh. way to make music right and and when uh did you spend your whole childhood in florida no actually i spent until i was 10 i was in florida and then we lived in the republic of panama for two years why uh, my dad wanted to, he thought you should serve your country and you should serve God and you should serve, you know, whatever his, can't remember the exact number of them. So he had been a deacon in the church. He was a lawyer and then a judge. And he thought that he'd work for the State Department for a couple of years. Now, to me, he'd already served the country because he'd been in the Second World War. Yeah. But I thoroughly respected where he was at. Yeah. So he went to work for the State Department for a couple of years in the Republic of Panama. And to his credit, he didn't send us to uh, the canal zone to live in. Yeah. We lived in Panama and went to a Spanish-speaking school. They threw me in the deep end, me and my sisters. Uh-huh. Did you learn Spanish? Allegedly, because I made it, but um, <laughs> made it I don't remember end. any of it, which is a real, you know, disgrace yeah. for me. And but do you have memories of the of the, that experience? Yeah, it was great. The school I went to was actually a, like a twenty minute bus ride up the hills into like an outcropping on a hill on the side in the jungle, and you'd be eating your lunch, like you'd just take your lunch out uh-huh. on like an outcropping. And I remember seeing a frog the size of a cat. Oh fuck! I literally the size of a cat, like just a kind of sitting, sitting there. Yeah, dinosaur frog. Just kind of staring at me, and I was there when Jack Kennedy was killed. I was there when um, you remember that when huh? the Beatles showed up. Yeah, because a kid came into my class and said, "Hey, they shot your president." You know, what was that like at home? Because it was. Uh, Would your dad? We were pretty yeah. horrified and shocked. The they day. Democrats. Yeah, and they shut the they they took us out of the school. They didn't shut the school down, and pretty shortly after that, there was some kind of trouble between the Panamanians and the US kids at a high school and it turned into riots and uh-huh. they had to they had to take us into the canal zone for safety. That's why so that's a government zone. Yeah, that's US the, property. The, the canal zone was the US property. Right, right. And then what did you go back to Florida after that? Went back to Florida, then they sent me off to boarding school in New England. Where? Exeter in uh, New Hampshire. The best one. Yeah, it's a pretty good one. The, the, I have to the say. aristocracy. I have no idea how I got into this day. I have no idea how I got. That in. is like the prep school. I think the weren't the, who went, went to there? Exeter and Andover. Right, right. We, well, I, <laughs> everybody from Robert Benchley to Dan Brown, who wrote the Da Vinci Code, code to uh, I think Wim Butler from Arcade Fire went there. It's weird because a lot of artists end up going there, you know, and and, and then there's a lot of political types, a lot of world leaders. I, I guess they're really. It's strange. Like you're, Catch Secor from Old Crow Medicine Show went to Exeter. Right. You know, all these people like that. But then I think a guy who was the head of the IRS a couple of years ago went to Exeter. Right. It's really just the, the, the first rung on the, you know, the Harvard, the next, the Ivy League, and then, you know, sort of integrating into the uh, ruling class. Yeah. I don't know what I was doing there, but. I don't either, but, you know, you, you made it. It was cool because I lived in the South. Yeah. But. My experience with black music would be Aretha or James Brown or uh-huh. Otis on the radio. Uh-huh. And um, I wasn't hip to all of the blues stuff that was going on until I went up to New England. And right. the kids up there, you know, the kids from New York coming to school or whatever Turned from you Boston, they had like the John Mayle and Eric Clapton with the Blues Breakers records. Right. And they'd have blues bands. Yeah. And they'd turn me onto this stuff. And I would flip out and they'd go, you think that's good? 
check out Robert Johnson, check out go Howlin all the way Wolf, back, check right. out Muddy, yeah, you know, go all the way back, yeah. And so that opened my eyes up about music that was happening in my actual back, you know, out the back door of the house right. in Florida, right. I, I I I had the same experience, but I was not fortunate enough to be you know ten years older to where you know guys putting together blues bands in the in you know the mid to late sixties was a, a new thing. You know, white dudes playing blues is like holy shit. You know, so that must have been exciting because by the time that I got around to the blues, you know, there's just bar bands doing it. You know, well, don't you think that it's really interesting in an artist's career or a musician's career or a painter or a filmmaker or yeah. whatever when they're young and they're just discovering? Oh, it's, yeah. And so you had the Butterfield Blues Band showing up. I just listened. I just started listening to them again recently. That East West record is really something. I have get the, the vinyl on East West. Get an old vinyl. It's not that hard to find. I I've been listening to the first one because I know yeah. you know because I got I Born got my in Chicago and all that stuff. right. I got yeah. my guys you know and I and I like Bloomfield enough. But I I, I was uh, in terms of white blues guys. Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac knocks me out. It knocks me got, out. Um, and, I have a record of theirs called Boston. I have the vinyl of that. Of it's Fleetwood just Mac? called Boston, and what it is—it's four volumes. I've only found volume one, and it is one night at the Boston Tea Party in 1970, and it's Peter Green, Danny Kerwin, and Jeremy Spencer. Right. Is it is thrilling? I I can't understand where what he does comes from. You know, like you know, his voice and his and his feeling for 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 the guitar is is like transcends almost anything i've ever heard it's he's so special yeah and the way that he plays off of danny Kerwin, yeah is really special and then you've got the wild card of jeremy spencer in there who is just doing a lot of things that are very they're either elmore james songs oh, or elmore. very elmore james yeah. until peter green leaves and yeah. then you get the kiln house record right and it's Kerwin and Sp- Kerwin and Spencer, yeah. And you get these Buddy Holly tributes, and you get these country kind of semi parodies, and all uh-huh. this whole other side of Jeremy Spencer comes popping out. Wild, yeah. But like Butterfield, like I, he wasn't really my thing. And for some reason, the other night, it's, it's weird that you bring him up because I just I was driving to a gig, and I, you know, I was anxious, and I turned on that one. I had it on my my iPhone, and I just keep going back to it, and I finally. You know, like I talked about it on the show. It's like I finally connected with the fact that those fuckers meant it. You know, they they were honoring something that they were brought up in. You know, I mean, they were at the lap of of Muddy and that whole Chicago crew. And they wanted to make it like that. They wanted to make it like that. But they're also really excited by it. Yeah, exactly. This is not some kind of let's learn something because it's American and it's traditional and we're going to... school ourselves in it right in order to present you a history lesson right because damn it this is alive and it excites the hell out of us yeah. so we're going to show it to and you. I, I finally felt that just the night before last dude yeah that's congratulations <laughs> congratulations that's a really wonderful wonderful thing what else have you been listening to well uh i've been listening to like some i never was into metal yeah and uh, and since I got into vinyl, I went through a little bit of time with those first four Sabbath records. Yeah, it's good, man. Yeah, Sabbath was a good band. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but I listened to Fleetwood Mac a lot. I listened to Peter Green a yeah. lot. I've been listening to some Albert King lately. I've, oh, Albert King. Yeah. yeah, and I've been listening to. Uh, I just listened to some Wilson Pickett this morning because I was talking to Patterson Hood about his dad. Yep. And I saw that documentary. I'm like, holy fuck. Yep. And uh, so I've been listening to that, and then I got the box of stuff from that guy. Listen to that first in Lizzie. I'm, I'm going all over the map. Grab, 
Uh, the vinyl, the the double Wilson Pickett greatest hits. I have it. That record it's is great. all I listened to in in like nineteen seventy four, seventy five. That record was on my turntable round the clock. Yeah, just for sheer joy. Oh yeah, just, just for sheer. Joy. I just cleaned it right before you got here. I had it on the turntable. I listened to Hey Jude. We used to we used to play that song. I'm in love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we used to play that live. It was just such the, a joy. the Heartbreakers did. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, what were the first bands? I mean, when, so you when you well, let me before I get there. Like when, when I remember when I first had to reckon with Robert Johnson. Yeah. So you're dealing with a quality of recording that's difficult right away, and you're dealing with a mythology that you've heard about. Everybody talks about it. So, you know, when you enter that record, you know, again, you have to make that shift in your mind to sort past the age, to sort past the, the crackle, and, and, and feel the soul of that record. Yeah. Which song of, of that one did it to you? Possibly Hellhound on My Trail. Right, right. You know? It's like, what is that thing? It's, it's like not even a whole song. I'll also, Come On In My Kitchen. It's yeah, like all of that. But when I put that on, the first time I put it on, I was like, I don't understand this. What is it about this? Right. But I wanted to hear it again. It's and haunting. It's haunting. But for me, it's the thing where ever, however much older you get, yeah. you listen to certain music. Right. And it means something different yeah. to you. And I'm a really slow study. So I find out, I figure out what songs mean. Uh-huh. You know, after listening to them for twenty years, that's I, what so, they're. That's why they're magic. The nickel drops. It's like, oh, I know what he means here. What is? Oh, the payphone. Just yeah, or dro- or is that it? That's the old expression, the nickel drop. Right. You know, it's like I finally understood it. The signal went through to my brain mm-hmm. that I got it. But like, she's a kind-hearted woman, studies evil all the time. Like, yeah. what the hell is that? And what is that? I don't fucking know. <laughs> I think it's just women. <laughs> I think it's just. I think it's really incredibly deep and special and you can spend, you know, it's Kabbalistic knowledge or something like that. You spend more than a lifetime trying to study Crack the code of the blues? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I just learned recently what what dropping a dime on, where that came from. That's the same thing. That's a payphone, but it means a different thing. When you drop a dime on somebody, you rat them out, right? You rat them out, yeah. But it's still a payphone reference. Yeah. Yeah. I I assume the nickel dropped is a payphone reference. Sure. Yeah, yeah I, I I would think so. You drop a dime because you put a dime in the payphone and call up and tip the cops yeah, off. That's right. Him, He's I here, suppose. man. He's yeah. across the street, dude. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That kind of music. Like I had another experience with that with Skip James not too long ago. You know, when I read a book called The Devil and Skip James, and I was like, I had not really reckoned with Skip James, but he was another one of those guys that made a handful of those recordings and then had a resurgence in the '60s. But yeah. but you know, like you know, I'm so glad. You know that song, the way he played it. Oh yeah, it's nothing. That's it's a masterpiece. It's oh yeah, a, like it'll never happen again. Well, whatever. he's a badass piano player. He is that too, right? Yeah, yeah, just unusual piano player, very unusual. And guitar then too. Oh, guitar as yeah. well. And everybody thinks of guitar, but yeah, but he he was yeah. He was a badass piano. Who are your player. blues piano guys? Otis Spann. Yeah. Um. Whoever the guys are whose names I can never remember on you all the Howlin' Wolf records, the piano on the Howlin' Wolf records, right? Unbelievable. And and did you did you, did you have that album with uh, Otis Band and Fleetwood Mac? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. But I've got um, Ian Stewart. Oh yeah, Ian yeah. Stewart was amazing. Yeah, like I learned to play the piano off of listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. The Fifth Stone. Before I got into studying the older stuff. Uh-huh. And 
there's a rotating cast of characters on the Helen Wolf records playing drums and piano and stuff, and they're always accepted. And Hubert's always there. Hubert Sumlin's Hubert's always there. Hubert's there almost all the yeah, time. He's yeah. not always. Yeah. Buddy Boy Arnold or somebody was uh-huh. there at one point. Uh-huh. But, but the feel on those records, and there's some kind of scale that must come straight from Africa that they play. That it's It's bizarre, and the drive is bizarre. It's just honest human stuff that hadn't been near a right. damn metronome in its right. life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you, have you always had an appreciation for that, or are you finding that more now? I think that's why See You Later Alligator drove me nuts from when I was a kid. Too tight. No, it's not too tight. It actually swings. Oh, it has more It drove room. me nuts in a good way. Oh, so it, it's not that's so That's why broad. Heartbreak Hotel, when I was a little kid, was like... What the hell is that? And to this day, it's like, what the hell is that? I only have eyes for you by the flamingos. Uh-huh. Um, the Beatles twist and shout. It's like those things. Like, and that's a straight beat on twist and shout. But damn, that thing swings. Yeah. So when you, what was your first band? Something terrible called the Dimensions with my best friend from across the yard. The, the Dimensions. Yeah, the Dimensions. How many, how many songs like, were the Dimensions? It was very science fiction name. Uh-huh. Oh, it was awful. Mm-hmm. I think it was largely a vehicle for my cousin to like get chicks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how did you meet uh, Tom and the fellas? I saw him around a music store that I used to haunt when I was like eleven or twelve, and he was an older kid. And uh, the older kids that worked there yeah. had long hair, and they clearly had a deal where they were like they were in a band. They yeah. had their stuff together, yeah, and they were intimidating because they're like three years older than me. And if you're twelve, three years is like ten years, uh huh, and um, or twenty years. And so they were the intimidating older kids, yeah. And I actually got to meet him and and got to know him about four or five years later because my friend from across the yard that I was in a band with, the Dimensions, yeah, he him Sandy, he was hauling gear for Tom's band. Uh-huh. And said, at thirteen, Tom's got a gear hauler. 14? Well, at fifteen, oh, no, yeah. but no. By the time I started hanging out with Tommy, he was probably seventeen, eighteen. But uh-huh. yeah, you get somebody. Well, it's more like, can I borrow your van? Yeah, and yeah Sandy yeah. had the van. Right, got know? it. Yeah. So I started going to see them play, and they were so good. And what were they? How many pieces? It was just a. Uh, it was four, four piece band called Mud Crutch. Which Mud is, Crutch. Yeah. Don't know why. What kind of shit were they playing? Uh, it kind of sounded like the Burrito Brothers crossed with the Rolling Stones, crossed with Neil Young. Really? Yeah. So he already kind of had a sound. Well, it's just what everybody liked. You know, they were listening to the Burrito Brothers. They were listening to Porter and Dolly. They were listening to Early Elvis. They were listening to the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, and, and Graham. Uh-huh. And, um, and Bob uh-huh. and Neil. Uh-huh. And the covers would come from that pool. And then they'd play this stuff that Tom had written at like 17 or 18. And I'd be like, good Lord, that's as good as any of the songs y'all are doing by anybody else. So what year is that? This is like 1971, 72. So they, so they were completely out of the, the Southern Rock, Almond Brothers, Cirque. No, world. it wasn't anything like that. Right. So they were already doing their own thing, really. Absolutely. And did they have a following? They had a really big following. And then I joined. <laughs> Oh, come on. And there went the following. So, okay, so you joined the band Mud Crutch. Yeah, Mud Crutch. Mud Crutch, sorry. Yeah. My mistake. 
Where does that come from? Mud crutch. The hell I have that? no damn idea. Somebody you took never some LSD. asked Tom, and you know, I don't even forty want it. years. I, I just knowing <laughs> them. I think somebody took some LSD and thought they had an idea for a weird name. We got it. Yeah, you know, yeah. They were called the Epics before they were Mud Crutch, which I think is a much better the name. The Epics is good. That's a good name. So, 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 what happens? You join up, and and how did that change the the face of things? What did you bring to the table? What was who was leading the show? Tom was leading the show, but everybody in the band was writing stuff. Uh huh. And we and Tom also was. Everybody had ambition, and knew knew that there was a way to get out of town, except me. And I just kind of went, "I'm coming along." Right. And so Tom figured it out how to get the hell out of Dodge, and had some record companies that kind of wanted to see what we were about lined up in California. Right. And at the last minute. Denny Cordell, who produced Go Now for the Moody Blues, produced Wider Shade of Pale, produced the early move stuff, uh -huh. the Joe Cocker great stuff, yeah. Leon Russell, yeah. had a record company. And at the last minute, when we're already heading out to California, he yeah. calls, says, stop in Tulsa yeah, and Tulsa. Let's, let's talk. Because English guy in Tulsa, because, you know, you get English people sometimes get fascinated with the South. <laughs> so <laughs> Tulsa's the, not even the South. Said, well... Yeah, close it enough. It ain't the right. north. Yeah. Um, said, come stop in Tulsa and let's talk. And we stopped in Tulsa and we were like, this is the deal. Uh -huh. So we 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 wound up signed to an independent label that had Phoebe Smith. Alligator? No, nah, Shelter. It? Shelter, that was it. Was that, but that was that was Leon's label, right? It was Leon and um, Denny ran it. It was Leon, J.J. Kale, Dwight Twilley, Phoebe Snow, and us. Uh -huh. And the Gap Band uh -huh. in early... Early incarnation. Cause, so cause it was a very cool label. It was very cool because Leon did his stuff and he also he did a lot of Freddie King, a couple few Freddie yeah, King. Yeah, Freddie was later. On, yeah, absolutely. So, all right. So, okay. So now you're you're not, but before we get there real quick. So you left, you, you finished at Exeter and you didn't go to college, you bail or what? I went to two years at Tulane and at the end of it, Tom was like, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, you're absolutely right. He's so like, you'd already been in the band and I, I was playing in the band in the summer and yeah. when I was home on vacation. And he's like, why are you going? He's like, what are you doing in college? But New Orleans, did you get anything out of that? Yeah, absolutely. Two years of college in New Orleans, you get a lot. Yeah. And it gets into your, it just gets into your system. Because it was even a, a little more, uh, it was it's probably a very vital and a different different city than it is, not post-Katrina, but but like uh, it was all, it was firing on all cylinders then. Well, everything's different now. Like, New Orleans fires on its own cylinders in its own way, and I have been there several times in the last few years, and it's remarkable. New Orleans, you talk about Hellhound on My Trail being a deep well that you're going to go back to yeah. before you ever figure it out. Right. Get a clue about yeah, it. Yeah, New Orleans, there's so much depth in New Orleans. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In a single bar of music in New right. Orleans. Nobody will ever do that right unless they're from New Orleans. When you were there, were you able to, to see uh, Professor Longhair, Dr. Absolutely. John, or any of those cats? I didn't see Dr. John there, but I saw Professor Longhair, and I saw the meters from a distance. And Clifton Chenier? Didn't see Clifton. Uh-huh. But Longhair, uh -huh. Longhair was, was as mind-blowing as you expect. I saw him two or three times. Uh-huh. And when I was in the worst band in the history of the world in college, we opened for Longhair. Really? Yeah, and I was so embarrassed and ashamed because the rhythm section was fighting and arguing and had refused to work together and rehearse for th for six weeks. Uh huh. And we have this gig opening for my hero. Right. And it's like, so we hadn't practiced. We'd done nothing, and I'm the front man in the band. Right. 
me and the drummer, the guys that are, the, that are the front. So I, I, me and the drummer, and it was his fault he was arguing with the bass player. But I wound up taking the hit because I'm the really weird looking guy with the beard and right. glasses and yeah, stuff. Yeah, know? oh man, that's and, embarrassing. And then long hair comes on, and I'm just like, oh, I'm uh, so ashamed. Fuck. Well, I mean, on this new album, on You Should Be So Lucky, your solo album, it's the first one, right? Yeah. I mean, you do that song, what is it called? Uh, Wobbles? Wobbles, yeah. That's straight up, right? That's New that's, Orleans. That's meant to be straight up New Orleans. And there's a lyric on it that I didn't sing on the record because I didn't write it until after the record was oh, done. Doesn't that suck? But I put the lyric on the lyric sheet. And oh, it's you did? About, it's, about, it's, it's called Wobbles because I know this girl from New Orleans. And when I met her, she said, come down and visit sometime. I'll introduce you to Wobbles. And I'm like, who's, who, who's Wobbles? Is that your dog or something? She's yeah. like, no, Wobbles is me when I've had a few. <laughs> <laughs> and so the lyric is actually about a girl wobbling down Esplanade at, uh-huh. at dawn uh-huh. after a wild night. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and you, so you didn't you didn't get to lay the vocal track down. No, but I played at Largo a couple of weeks ago, and I uh, I sang it. Oh yeah. Yeah, it seemed to go over pretty well. Oh, that's good, man. Yeah, but long it, hair. Yeah, that I wrote that specifically to try to get get my hands around it. But that must have you know not unlike whatever your experience was with uh, those records you were listening to or. or I, I imagine that that had to shape you musically to some degree, uh, you know, to be there at all. It gave me the understanding that I needed to go deeper. Right. It showed me just how incredibly much depth there was to go to, not on an intellectual level, but on an emotional level, like to get into the music like that emotionally and to relax like that. Alan Toussaint, just for, you will never see a pianist like Alan Toussaint. You yeah. never will. If you get a chance to see him, especially if he's playing entirely solo, go see Alan Toussaint. Yeah. Amazing. Just because it's so gentle and it's so relaxed, but it rolls and it thrills and it drives and it it swings and it's just, it is lovely and it will move you so much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that because he's not a guy that I've really tapped into at all. Get a record called Our New Orleans. He's got a couple of pieces on that. Uh-huh. And... um. If you can find any old like vinyl that's history of New Orleans, there's some anthologies. This is stuff from the 50s and 60s. I got one of those. Yeah, yeah I, I, that's great music. And Toussaint wrote a lot of those songs. Oh, I got, I got a, who, who released those? I don't think it was Rhino, but it was Rhino one of them. Rhino put some out. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so, so you, you quit Tulane, you go back to Florida, and now you're playing with Tom, and you guys have been, have been uh, summoned to Tulsa. Yeah. And, this, and, and are you the Heartbreakers yet? No, we're still Mud Crutch. Mud Crutch is summoned to Tulsa yeah. for, to uh, meet with Shelter Records. Yeah. And what happens? It was love at first sight on, <laughs> on, all, on all accounts. How many of the songs from the first album did you have in place at that time? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> we had zero. Yeah, we, we, but you weren't playing covers. Not from... We were playing a few covers when we played clubs, but what we would play is, you know obscure relatively obscure dylan stuff and things which like ones we play you go your way i go mine mm-hmm. five believers uh-huh. that kind of stuff i respect the fact that you put the dylan's version of karina karina on the new record because that's one of those songs that I, I that moves me all the time i love that song and when glenn john said let's have a couple covers i thought karina karina i so respect that because I, I mean i play that song and and like it, it it kills me that song it's a wonderful song and also you know david and gillian or do you know david and gillian i, I think I've, I've met them maybe once well, you're playing with them to play with them is such a joy and i thought 
that and the other cover is a Dylan original, Dylan and Robert Hunter called Duquesne Whistle, and I thought, Lord, it'd be such a joy to play these two Bob Dylan songs uh-huh. with, um, with Gillian and David. So that's what we wound up doing. And then who else is in the band? Who else is on the record? Blake Mills on guitar, Ethan Johns, who's also a producer and a great multi-instrumentalist on guitar, uh, British drummer named Jeremy Stacy, uh-huh. uh, Don was on bass, <laughs> Petty on bass on one song, because Petty was the bass player in Mud Crutch, and I love the way he plays bass. And does he play a good bass? Yeah, and uh, Ryan Adams on acoustic and harmony on one song. He's powerful. Yeah, he is. And a guy, do you know Joel Jerome? He lives around here. Uh-uh. Local guy, really Who's good. Who's he play with? He's got his own thing that uh-huh. he does, but he sings uh, harmony a little bit. Uh-huh. Yeah. So did you uh, s- Ringo. Ringo played tambourine on a song. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Well, you you know everybody, right? Cause you're- I know a couple of people, but <laughs> but it's like nobody slings a tambourine like Ringo Starr, so it's like, needs a tambourine. Uh-huh. Well, uh-huh. you know. And he was willing to do it. He was down for it. Really? You just said, Ringo, will you play some tambourine? He was going to play drums on the song, and we got the dates mixed up, and so he called saying... You know, like, I'm ready to to cut that track. And we said, damn, we couldn't find you. Or we didn't know where you were, so we cut it without you. But it needs a tambourine. He said, I'm there. And he was there in 20 minutes. Where'd you, where'd you tape it? We taped it, and it is tape. We taped it at uh, Sunset Sound in Hollywood. That's a that's an old place, right? Yeah, it's an old great place. Uh-huh. Just really great studio. Uh-huh. Yeah. All analog. Well, our room was all analog. Uh-huh. Yeah. We did, did you have to bring shit in? No, I think they had the tape there. Uh-huh. But we uh, we brought some tape in. They had the machines Who are there. the ghosts in that place? The ghosts in that place, the, the ghosts that I think of first off and always are the Rolling Stones, because I think that they did like some of Sticky Fingers in Exile. Oh, remix. They did the mix on Exile there, I think, right? I think they cut some tracks or, oh, yeah? or vocals or whatever. Right, 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 there. right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where they're right. That's where they went after they got back with the tapes from the mansion. Did they go and back they, or did they do that stuff beforehand? It's funny because some of the stuff on that lo- think, sounds to me like it's left over from Sticky Fingers. I think what I, if I if I remember correctly, they they had the tapes from from France, uh-huh. and then you know they laid the background vocals in. Yeah, after. But, but I noticed that there's some stuff. Oh, you know, yeah. we, we, why don't we just call them? Well, Let's you, call the you Rolling got him? Stones. Yeah, just ask, mm-hmm. Let's ask Keith. No, I, th- I figured you'd have a line on I, the Rolling I, I Stones. Don't. I've got his book up there. We can go through it. His, uh, it's all in Keith's autobiography, man. That book kills me. You haven't read it yet. Oh, it's fucking great. I, I like to have things that I haven't read yet so that when I need something, it will be there for Dude, me. Dude, it'll blow your mind. I know it will. It's like, it's like the Bible. I like, know it'll blow my mind. Because like, I don't know Keith Richards, and I always you have an idea of a guy in your head, and he turns out to be this very sophisticated, highly intellectual storyteller that, that he's got, all his memories are there, everything's there. Yeah, I know him just a bare little bit, and he's a remarkable guy. Yeah, yeah, he's but like, guy. growing up but loving I, the I know Stones, him just the tiniest bit. Right, but no, growing up with the Stones, you're thinking like, he's, a, he's just a fucking, you know, yeah. Nah. He look at all the songs he wrote. You know, look at all the music he made. He couldn't just be some right. idiot. Well, that know, was my mistake. Yeah. Well, that's whatever. But like, just a, you know, there's too many rock and roll bands that have some idiot in them who didn't need to be an idiot, but chose to be an yeah, idiot publicly. He assumed that Keith was an idiot. Right. 
which is really a, Not a true. foolish assumption. Same with Iggy Pop. I had Iggy Pop in here. Oh, Lord, you can't write those words. And he remembers everything, though. That was my fascination. It's like, how they, because the ideas you get of them is like they're fucked up all the time. I can't remember nothing. Yeah. Well, the, the two king junkies can. Yeah. Maybe I should have leaned toward junk more than, <laughs> than the booze. Hecky Hall. Yeah. You still drink? Oh, no. Long time, right? Long, long time. I got I got time. 14. Yeah, I got 26 in a couple of weeks. Wow. Yeah. So you it, were it it had to be done. It was my it was a public service that I stopped drinking. Well, you had a good run. You stopped about around the time I did, late 30s, right? Mid 30s, yeah. 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 So you you got you got some time in. I got some Oh, I got some unfortunately <laughs> for the for the world, I got some time in. It really? Is oh, it unfortunately? Yeah. I'd say it's unfortunately. Oh you got, yeah. You got nothing good out of it? I got something good out of it. I'm sure, if only I could remember what it was. <laughs> so, so through like through how many records were you fucked up? I don't know. Like the first, uh, I was fucked up for the first ten years of the band. Wow. Or eight years of the band. Sounded good. Well, thank you. You know, sometimes you sometimes <laughs> it can lead you down the right path on its way to the irrevocable wrong path. Sure. You know? Got ugly. Yeah, inspiration turns to expiration. Uh huh. You know? yeah. yeah. What was that last night like? Just sad. Uh, oh, a friend of mine called up, said, "Let's record," and I said, "Dude, I can't. I'm too hungover to even walk to the car." Yeah. And I'm like, I can't make music because of this stuff. Yeah. Oh no, man. Yeah. That's wrong. Yeah. And that really drove the nail in. Oh, good man. Yeah. All right. So you're Shelter Records. You signed the deal. We sign a deal. We make a record. The first record. Yeah. No. We make a mud crutch record. Where's, where's that at? Can I get that? That's a good vinyl? question. There is Did no you, mud crutch record. It didn't, never got released. There was a single, and it didn't do very well. And there was an album that chose not to get released because uh-huh. I think uh, the the powers that be at the record company, which is Denny, thought. The strong guys in the band are Campbell and Petty, mm-hmm. and uh, the rest of it's too many cooks. So they broke the band up and broke my heart in a million pieces, and I wound up in a multiracial uh, soul band called the Nasty City Soul Review in Florida, in Altadena. Here, yeah, we were out in Cali- We were out in California with Mud Crush making a record here in Tulsa. So he breaks the band up, and within what months, weeks, you're you're playing in a. A soul band? Well, you had to make a living some way, and they wouldn't even hire me at Taco Bell or a record store, you know? Oh, this is heartbreaking. So this is what, 75? This is like 75, yeah. And then what happens? Does Tom pull it together or what? Stan Lynch, who wound up being the Heartbreakers drummer, moved out from Florida. We're hanging out. We love the Faces. The Faces have a bartender on stage. We figure we'll start a band called The Drunks. Uh You know, it's, it's built in. Um... And my friend Tim Kramer is working at Village Recorder as a tape operator uh-huh. and assistant. Uh-huh. And they say, get somebody to record so you can learn and we'll give you the studio from like 10 till 6 a.m. And he calls me, says, I like your songs, come down. So me and Stan put a band together. And the band was basically the Heartbreakers without Tom. And I called Campbell him. was there too? Campbell was there too. Campbell been working with Tom on Tom's solo record. Okay. Campbell was there too. And I just said, uh, Tom, come on down. I don't know how to sing on a microphone. You know, give me some advice. Yeah. And he said, okay. So he comes down, and we cut a bunch of tracks. And, like, within a day, I get a call from, you know, somebody from Tom's camp going, 
Tom likes that banjo recording with, and he doesn't want to be a solo guy with session players. And I'm like, I'm in. I like his songs quite a bit, you know. <laughs> that was the original idea. And that was the, yeah, it's like, <laughs> okay, you know, like y'all <laughs> yeah. kind of going the wrong way around. Yeah. <laughs> but, and that's what happened. We got the band together. The only song that, there's one song on the first record called Hometown Blues. and I that's that. That's Mud Crutch with Duck Dunn on bass. And um, Really? I didn't know that. Duck yeah. Dunn's on, on Hometown Blues? Yeah. And, um, and we had Don't Do Me Like That. Yeah that we recorded for the Mud Crutch record that never came out. Uh-huh. And then when we did Dam the Torpedoes years later, I, I was one of the voices going, I think I was the only voice going, hey, what about Don't Do Me Like That? Yeah. So we redragged it out and recut it. That was that old, huh? That was that old. That was from 74, I think. That's unbelievable, man. Yeah, and he, I tell you, he was writing really good songs from the get-go. Well, they're, 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 what's amazing about them is they're, they're, they're simple kind of, Classic fucking pop songs, man. Yeah, well, that's what we like. Yeah. Yeah, I we mean, like all sorts of things. You can go into The Grateful Dead or you can go sure. to the MC5. Sure. But, but, but um, he knows how to hook, man. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's like, it's 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 amazing to look at the catalog when you really sit down with it, you know, as a guy who's 50 who grew up with it, and you're like, holy shit, every song in this, I know every song on this fucking record. Well, there's rarely a song also that sounds like, I have a clever idea for a song title. Right. It's, he's writing songs that are, you know, like they're emotionally grounded in something real. It, it's, it, it's earnest. It's, it's like, you know, uniquely uh, American. It's sort of like uh, there's something, you know, eternally teenage or about the uh, longing. There's a longing about it. Yeah. There's a hopeless romanticism. That's about it. it. Yeah. 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 You know? Yeah. And that's like, that's great stuff. Absolutely. For the boys and girls. Well, yeah, for them, and I'm and I'm one of the boys. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, I mean, so that first record was a monster, right? No, that yeah. first record they wouldn't even play on local radio for a long time. I think K Rock played it once or twice. Really? But the rest of the stations were like, we don't play that that shit. What what what, what did they mean by that shit? I don't know. Um, after but, the seventies, like you know, after the early seventies, they decided that I think that it didn't fit into the California singer songwriter thing out here. It didn't sound like the Eagles, and it wasn't in uh, Jackson Brown's camp. And it was like, I don't think it was the thing. So what we did was we toured a bunch, and then we went over to England because the English got the record when it came out, and over there, yeah, and they loved it, yeah, from the get go, yeah, and so we got a a gig opening for uh, Nils Lofgren over there. And we went over there, and it took off well enough that right after the Nils Lofgren opening slot, we did a headlining tour of England. And the word got back over here, and people started saying, well, maybe we're going to take them seriously. And the promo guys over here have been working their ass off. John Scott had been working his ass yeah. off. but So there was a lot of dedication and a slow build, but England you know, put us on the map. It's, it's hilarious because you were opening for a guy that, can't, that really couldn't give it away here. You know, and, but they loved him in England. It's too. wild, right? Yeah, I mean, Lofgren is a great guitar player. Yeah, and he ended he up with Bruce, but but as a solo act, he was he couldn't he wasn't get traction get, here. He wasn't getting much traction here. He was getting a little bit, but not much. But right. over there, they really were interested in. They Nils. dug him. Yeah, absolutely. But you guys blew it up in England, like they they got it because they they got it. They love good pop. Yeah, they do, and they kind of got it. I think they got that. Oh, it's not going to be all about long guitar solos and baroque composition. It's going to be it's going to be direct. Yeah. Direct. That's yeah. the word I'm looking for. When yeah. I say tight, it's direct. Be direct. Yeah, because one of my favorite songs on there is like laid back. I mean, isn't Mystery Man on there? Mystery. Yeah, Mystery. 
man. Yeah. yeah. Love that fucking song. I love that song. And too. Wild I'm One Forever. Wild One Forever. Yeah. That fucking song kills me. I used to listen to Wild One Forever when my heart was broken when I was in high school. Yeah, it's one of those, isn't it? But yeah, the girl that you just couldn't hold on to, man. Yeah, it's one of those. Yeah. And look, I, you know what it's <laughs> like to grow up with, with a guy from like, I sat in f- with him for the first time, maybe I was 17. Tom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with him and Mike in Mud Crutch. I yeah. sat in with them for the first time when I was 17, maybe 18, but probably still 17. Yeah. And so my entire life I've been around a guy that can write Wild One forever. Yeah, I can't. I can't. And imagine. shows up, and to this day he shows up, and it's like, he's like, I got this song, and he plays it for you, and you're just like, what the hell is... <laughs> I went over to Mike Campbell's house when they were recording yeah. the solo record, the right. Full Moon Fever record. Right. Just, I was curious. Yeah. And, did um, that hurt your feelings at all? Yeah, it did, but you know, I got over it. What what was the what was the idea there? If Mike was on it, I mean, I never understood that the difference. They're a team. It. They're they're just a team. Tom and Mike are like the Heartbreakers are a team, but Tom and Mike are a really deep team. Uh-huh. That's a really deep team. And I've been playing with all these other folks, and yeah, with different players who play different rhythms, right, and stuff. So if Tom wanted to go play with Jeff Lynn, yeah, you know, my feelings were hurt because I'm a human yeah. being. But yeah. you know, like, why shouldn't he go play with Jeff Lynn? Go have some fun, you know. Go play sure. with some other kids. Yeah, it, but you know, the weird thing about it is that, like, you know, nah, I don't love it. I didn't love it. <laughs> eh, you know, it, I'll tell you what, Free Fallen is a really great good song. song. And I walked great into song. that studio. No doubt, I walked into Campbell's Garage yeah. Studio. And uh, they said, hold on, we're doing a vocal. And I stood there while Tom sang, you know, she's a good girl. Yeah, I'm yeah. Like, the fuck? Yeah. And he sang Free Fall. And I said, let me play on this song. And they yeah. said, no. Oh, fuck, man. <laughs> I'm like, dude, let me play on this song. And it's yeah. like, Jeff Lynn's like, no, I don't think so. But that's like the best song on that record, right? What else is on that record? Running Down a Dream, a great lullaby called All Right for Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's but, a great But Free Fallen is a fucking sweet song, Free Fallen is a fabulous song. Do you guys play it, though? You play yeah, it in concerts. Yeah, we concert, play it. So yeah, we would... play it at shows. Yeah. And, but, you're, but you're the guy on Refugee, right? Yeah, that's me. Fucking, that's it. <laughs> that, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you, you, you're one of those cats where it's like, you know, that's that song, man. You know, and that's that's going to be that song forever. That organ. Well, that organ's prominent in the song. They turned me up. But, but forever, it's like, eternally grateful. But you hear for that first organ chord, and you're like, "That's yeah." You know, it's that that's song. That's right. You know, I, it's that song. I mean, I talked to uh, I talked to Hunt Sales. Oh, how's Hunt? He's all right. Yeah, yeah, uh, but he's he's hanging in there. He's, Good. He's in Austin, but like he's like that's less for life. That's 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 that. Yeah, that's it's, it. It's that. <laughs> you, but all I knew you got was one like, of those. They though. were yeah. All I knew is they're counting to four, and I'm going to hit the right chord. But you got one of those. Doing. You got one of those though. That's well, you, man. That's I'm glad to have got one of those. <laughs> got something somewhere. You got a few, I think. Maybe. So, but when you guys were doing. I mean, what's the story behind American Girl? Because I can listen to that once or twice a month. So he said he had this song, American Girl, and they'd cut the track without me because we were working in a, such a small homemade studio at Shelter Records yeah. that if the song was loud, you couldn't play piano at the same time. Oh, so, yeah, there's not, so they call me up and say, we got this track, come down and play piano. And I go in and it's like, damn, it's like a Bo Diddley beat but the drums aren't playing Bo Diddley. Yeah. And it goes forever and ever and ever without rhyming. Uh-huh. That's bitching. Yeah. 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 And it was it was the 4th of July, 1976. So it was the bicentennial, 1976. And by coincidence, we cut American Girl. Huh. You know? It's a sweet-ass song, man. Man, he, he, he can write those suckers. 
But you didn't. It didn't pop big until the second one. I think it popped big after England. Like you know, San Francisco and Boston caught on straight away. San Francisco and Boston were were our friends from the second we put the record out. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, a lot of records come out. Yeah. And you got to get some attention. Yeah. And we were a little bit different, and Tom's singing voice was a little bit different. Right. So it's you know, what do you do with this? It doesn't sound like Bohemian Rhapsody. Right. And it doesn't sound like Hotel California. It doesn't sound like anything that Ronstadt's doing. Right. And it's but the quality of the songs was like something that we all believed in. What was the first one that charted? I think eventually Breakdown charted. Right. Breakdown may have been the first single, but right. you know, I don't really know. Yeah. I don't really remember. I don't think I was paying that much attention. I was just drink, drinking. drinking and playing shows. And you, know? you, you guys are all friends? Are you still friends now? Yeah, we're still friends now, yeah. Absolutely. Were there times where that wasn't the case? No, not, not really. Not really, yeah. no. You know, you, my closest friends in the band were Howie Epstein and Stan Lynch. Yeah. And Howie went and died on me, and I told yeah. him, that I was going to kill him if he did that. So yeah. at some point, I'm going to have to follow through. And Stan, you know, Howie was Stan left the band. Yeah, Howie yeah. was the bass player. And Stan's gone. And Stan and Stan left the band like 20 years ago. He's all right though. Yeah, he's great. Okay, oh, he's great. <laughs> Is he yeah. still playing? He's playing some, and he's like co-producing Don Henley records and stuff like that. So he's doing all right. Don Henley's another monster, dude. I mean, that dude can write fucking song. He can write a song. God Don. damn, Don can write a song. Yeah, he's got something he wants to say. <laughs> You know, yeah, he does. So you and Tom are good. Oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You hang out. We don't all hang out that much anymore. Sometimes I have Campbell will come over to my house sometimes just to pick a little. Yeah. Um, and Ferroni I see quite a bit. Uh huh. But Tom's more of a homebody out in Malibu, and I'm more of a social guy. But when I played these shows for my record over at Largo a couple weeks yeah. ago. Everybody came except Ron Blair was out of town. So uh-huh. Tom and Mike and you know Scott and Steve, everybody came to the show. I was so touched and I was so <laughs> intimidated because it's like your older brothers are coming to <laughs> see how cool of a party are you throwing. <laughs> but they were so supportive. It was really, really sweet. It was good. Well, I think the album sounds great. Thanks. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of variety, man. Yeah, well, it's... You you sort of, you're tackling all your musical tastes. Well, you kind of want to, you don't want to do the same song over and over and over. Yeah. You know? It was, and this is actually your first bonafide solo record. Yeah, first time I've done anything remotely like this. And what was the, the biggest fear in, in doing it? The biggest fear was about, well, you, you don't know if the songs are going to strike other people and you don't know if your voice is going to carry it. Uh-huh. But um, I kind of like my voice. Uh-huh. I'm used to it, but I kind of like it. Yeah. And I had enough encouragement from enough people about the songs that I always like the songs. But when you're that close to something, you don't really know. You need somebody to like tell you. But I had enough outside encouragement about the songs uh-huh. that I finally decided, you know, let's let's put them on a record so that they stick around because you never know when you're going to walk around that corner and there's that bus. Yeah, you know? yeah. The, the, so the songs have a right to be the around. last ride. Yeah. <laughs> The big, the big kaboom. Are you, are you, oh, you meant getting hit by a bus. I thought you were seeing death as a bus one gets on. Well, that's that's a good one, too. There's a great movie called, look this up. It's called um, Dead of Night. Uh-huh. And there's a Twilight Zone episode taken from it. Uh-huh. And uh, where the, the woman or the guy is dreaming of a morgue all the time. And the morgue is room 101. Uh-huh. Anyway. Yeah. Death as a bus, yes. Dead of night. 
Okay. Don't get on the damn bus. Okay. Don't get on that damn bus. I won't get on the bus. If the conductor looks like that, do not get on the bus. Yeah. So wait, now, how did uh, how did Glenn Johns get involved in this? We're friends for a long time. Because he's he's like he's produced some of the guys you love, right? Yeah, and I was driving over here, and you know, some f- small faces record comes on, and yep, that's oh, Glenn engineering he did, that. He did that. He engineered which one? It was Ten Soldier, which I'm pretty sure it sounds like him. Uh huh. He did Ishiku Park, I believe, and all of that stuff. You know, the faces that. What's the one I got with the one? Uh, it's uh, the small faces with all them just sitting on the cover. Yeah, Glenn didn't do that record. I can't remember who did that record. That's, that's a, a great, great, hell of a great record. record, man. Yeah, I would've been listening to that recently too. Yeah, that's a great record. I yeah. love that. And he did the who else? Is, did he do the who? Yeah, like he he did a lot of the who, and he he I mean, hell he did who's next. Oh really? You know, yeah. I just listened to the first two Who albums. It comes in that double album package. Yeah, and he very well may have engineered. But I those. had no idea that that how diverse they were early on. They were, and it's that's crazy. my favorite period. It's like they were doing James Brown songs. That's my favorite period. Who is that? Just whacked out. Yeah, you, you can try it all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was great working with him. Yeah, but I mean, that's why the early Who stuff. It's their 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 slogan was maximum R and B because it was right. It was all R and B. It's crazy. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, but Glenn had said years ago, "Let's make a record sometime," and I was intimidated. Yeah. So it was like Glenn Johns. It's like, yeah, he's my friend, but he's Glenn Johns. Right. So if somebody shows Glenn Johns a song, it's going to be Mick and Keith with Sympathy for the Devil. Yeah. It's going to be actually <laughs> the Beatles. It's going to be George Harrison saying, here's a song called Something. Yeah. You Did know. he engineer those? I think he engineered those solo demos Sympathy, that though? came out. Sympathy he engineered, absolutely. Holy fuck. Absolutely. That thing, that fucking thing seared its way into my no heart shit. and mind. It stayed with me forever. When it comes on the radio now, I get chills. No shit. So, you know, you, you, you're yeah, going to show your songs to Glenn Johns. It's like, <laughs> look, I know he's my friend and everything, yeah, yeah. but are you really going to show your songs to Glenn Johns? Right, right. And the way that you sing to Glenn Johns when he has recorded the Beatles, when right. he has recorded Daltrey and the damned Rolling Stones. Right. You know, it's like, okay, uh, I will. Yeah. You gotta Sheepishly. Do, you got to do stuff that scares the shit out of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to. It's and he was in, right? Alive. He was in. And he was totally in. That's sweet, He was man. totally in. Do you uh, now? What what about your experience in, as a as a guy that that plays with other people? You know, because I just I you know I got that Muscle Shoals uh, documentary on my brain. Yeah, and and you're a guy like we talked about at the beginning about Booker T, who's a you know a member of the band. Yeah, that's and, the and, deal. And you play behind the guy. You'd be a band guy, and the bands that I like, they're all members of the band. I mean, Jagger may be out front, but he's a member of the band. Yeah, yeah. The Beatles are a damn band. It's yeah. not Paul McCartney, right? You know, like, right. With with a bunch yeah. of people. But the really great records like the Beach Boys, the Ultimate Session stuff is the Beach Boys, and right. the Spectre stuff. Right. And then for the other end of it, you get the Muscle Shoals stuff and the Stack stuff. Yeah. Those guys are a band because mm-hmm. they play together all the time. Right. But when they play with people, they play like they're a band. And so every time I did a session for somebody else, you think like you're in a band. But you know that guy. You know his music. You don't necessarily know the person whose music you you come into play. You uh-huh. may never have met him before. Really? Oh yeah. F- quite frequently, it's you know the producer, and the producer's got okay. something that he wants to do. Right. And you say, okay, I'm in. Right. And uh, you go down, and somebody you meet somebody. They show right. you their song, and to you, it's like you go in for six hours and, and work on a record. To them, they've been writing this stuff their whole life. Right. And it's dead. 
It's really important to them. And you have to take it seriously, and you have to put all the care you can into it. And if somebody calls you up to work with an artist whose music you actively dislike, unless you really, really badly need the money, which is valid, don't do it because it's not fair to the guy Uh or, or woman who's making the record because it's, you know... It's her heart that's in this, uh-huh. and she deserves to have somebody whose heart is in it playing on her record. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it, it, it seems to me that if the list I have here is any is real, I mean, you've played with with very definitive fucking people. Like you know, when you enter a session with uh, with well, not with John Fogarty yeah. or Elvis Costello. Or uh, and then you go like you play with Waylon too. Yeah. So you can you can sort of lock into just about anything. Well, all those people I knew their stuff, obviously. Right. No, I know, but like there, but that to me must be. I mean, is that more rewarding, or is it like the experience of 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 being part of someone's vision who you have no idea what the vision is? If if the song is really good, is how rewarding it is. Uh huh. If the song is really good, it doesn't matter if it's somebody you've never heard of before. If they've got a really good song, that's going to be a really rewarding day. And you work with Johnny Cash. Oh, yeah. A lot. Oh, yeah. Now, that experience for you, because those were the, with the Rick Rubin records, right? Yeah. And what was your role in that? My role in that was to be really quiet and try to understand what Rick and John wanted. Uh-huh. You know, just listen as close as you can with your ears and with your heart and just go, what do they want for these songs? Because it's Johnny Cash. He's going to, you know, talk about Robert Johnson. Well, Johnny Cash as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you want to do right by Johnny Cash (laughs) as much as you ever want to do right by anybody. You owe Johnny Cash, you know? (laughs) Yeah. You bloody owe Johnny Cash. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and what what kind of relationship did you have with him? I mean, where where was that at? He was always totally nice and kind to me, and very friendly and and wonderful. But it was a professional relationship. Uh-huh. You know, I'd come in and play. I'd come in and play the music. Yeah, he, he could go real deep. Yeah, that's like I said, Robert Johnson. Yeah, yeah. that's some deep, deep, deep stuff. Yeah, and um. You happy about that whole family experience? You know, like June's pretty damn deep. Roseanne is very deep. Yeah, Roseanne is very, very smart, deep woman. You've worked with her a few times. A few times, yeah. And with 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 Johnny, did you feel like you nailed it? Generally, I felt like I did. Yeah, that's good feeling. Generally, I felt like they did. Yeah, but we played. We went down to a church on Wilshire, Uh and cut Danny Boy with just me and him at a church organ. Yeah. And in the whole church there was the recording engineer, Rick Rubin, June Carter, Johnny Cash, me and the church organist because I didn't know what all the knobs did and he was helping me out. Uh-huh. And they had, you couldn't see over the top of the organ to see the preacher. Right. Johnny sitting in the preacher's chair and there's a mirror system, so you look in the mirror and you can see the preacher, so you're the church organist and you know what he's about to do and when to start the choir. Uh-huh. And I spent that thing looking through the mirror at a direct reflection of Johnny Cash hunched over a microphone sitting in the preacher's chair with headphones on with a June standing a few feet away from him just singing this beautiful, beautiful old song. Uh-huh. I was, I mean, 
what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? <laughs> be in it. You're going to be in it. That's the story. When, whenever, whenever you play music, yeah. you want to find a way through surrender or effort to just be in it. Yeah. And the best time is when you surrender. Yeah. And you could just fall into it. Yeah. And then it'll show you where it wants to go. Uh-huh. You know, then it'll show you where it wants to go. It's like a river or something. It's right. going to flow the way it wants to. And right. You, and if you can be the leaf, you know, yeah. or I guess if if you know how to surf, which you don't, if you can catch that wave yeah. and ride that wave, it's yeah. going to take you to shore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, that's a, that is a beautifully put uh, thing you just did there. Oh, yay. And and I, I think it's a great way to end. And I, and I love right. the new record, and it was, it was fucking great talking Thank to you. Thank you. It's really great talking to you. Thanks, buddy. All right. Okay, that's it. That's our show. That was nice, man. He's groovy. Go pick up his record if you like the if you like the sound of it. Go to WTF Pod for all your WTF Pod needs. Get the app, you newbies. Coming up on 500 episodes. You can only get the most recent 50 for free. Get that free app. Upgrade to premium for a few bucks. Stream all of them. Get some JustCoffee.coop. I'm drinking it right now. Oh, look out. I shit my pants. Just coffee. <sighs> All right, do what you got to do, man. I'm tired. I'm fucking tired and my hands are tingling. I'm going to the neurologist on Monday. Fuck, I hope there's nothing wrong. I'm just doing all the doctor stuff, man. You know, I'm at that age, you go do it. It's my feet and hands tingly. Weird, they feel weird. They feel like they're going to blow off my body. My hands and feet feel like they're going to explode. Tonight I'll be on Conan. All right. Boomer lives. <laughs>